One out, base is empty in the top of the ninth, and Nick Ahmed at the plate for the first time tonight. Leans back from an inside fastball delivered by Christian Bethencourt. One ball, no strikes. Christian Stone strikes. He's effectively wild. He's enough to make you uncomfortable as a hitter, which really doesn't allow you to stay in there and take your best hat. Hello and welcome to episode 1048 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs all of the time. I am talking here with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer all of the time as of whenever he joined The Ringer. How are you? Hello. <laughs> Doing well. Hi. Hi. So, uh, I don't know. This is Friday episode, but do you have any banter before we move on to the banter that I guess I do have? Well, I don't know if it's the same as your banter, but we got an email from Justin Banal, who is a member of the baseball punk band The Isotopes, uh-huh. former Ringer MLB show guest. He wanted to ask about Ichiro, and I figured we could just talk about this now instead of waiting for next week. So. He says, okay, so you guys know and have mentioned before that there is that meme slash rumor slash factoid that has always circulated that Ichiro could have been a slugger had he chosen to. As you likely know, Ichiro homered to right on what is very likely to be his last ever appearance in Seattle, barring any unexpected trade to the AL or his continuing to play for like six more years and making another interleague appearance. Did he do it on purpose? Did he prove that he always had the ability by doing it specifically in this spot just for the narrative? I've written about Ichiro and his supposed home run hitting before. You probably have uh-huh. to at some point. And I wrote about whether he should have been if he could have been based on a quote that he had once about how he could have hit. I forget what exactly he said, but he could have hit lots of homers if he'd been okay with hitting 220 or something instead of 320 or whatever. And so I tried to run some math and see whether he actually would have been better under those parameters. And the way it came out, it seemed like Ichiro is probably just better as he is if the alternative would have been a low batting average slugger. But I'm not sure I know your thoughts on the plausibility of it and whether you believed it when he used to say it. So what do you think? You have written the most exhaustively about it. I'm sure I've written more by volume about Ichiro, given the whole Mariners yeah. blogging days. But I, <laughs> it was always kind of one of those myths that I didn't want to see checked. Mm-hmm. I could have taken, you know, a, a home run derby because then I think that he could have turned it on. But I don't know. I guess you could think of it as one of those like instant swing change guys, right? Where if they can sacrifice contact for power and here's the thing with Ichiro and it was a very dramatic home run that he hit in Seattle it was outstanding there are very few circumstances in which a road player can hit a home run and receive a standing (laughs) ovation from everybody in attendance that was a good one because the Mariners had a big lead at the time right so it wasn't and it was just a solo shot it wasn't jeopardizing the game and he was you know beloved player so yeah as soon as that went out there was like a a huge cheer which is the opposite of what you usually hear but that was cool he was outstanding when Kenny Griffey Jr. had his first came back in Seattle after he joined the Reds, which was back in, I don't know, 2008, 2010. I don't remember exactly when it was, but in that game, which the Reds won like 14 to nothing or something absurd, Ryan Roland Smith made his major league debut. And in his debut, 
uh, as a reliever. The first batter he faced was Ken Griffey Jr., and he struck him out, and the fans booed. So it was a similar <laughs> circumstance uh, in a way. Uh-huh. But anyway, the reason I am skeptical that Ichiro did anything on purpose, as much as I would love to believe that he did, or maybe I wouldn't, I don't know which one is better. So this year he, he hit that home run. Last year he hit one home run. The year before that he hit one home run. The year before that, though, he hit one home run. So that's that's a total of three home runs playing semi-regularly, like batting about more than a thousand times between 2014 and 2016. Itro had three home runs. I'm certain there were circumstances where Itro was up and he thought, we could really use a home run here. But he was going for the all-time hits <laughs> record. So he just wanted singles. He was going for the high probability play. Yeah, I just wanted 3,000, I guess. But mm-hmm. I do believe that he has had the skills to turn on and hit for more power. He's hit 115 home runs in his career. I bet if he really tried, he could have doubled that. But he would have lost mm-hmm. a lot else. I think it was just a wonderful turn of events that he hit the home run. I like that he remains so almost mythological that even though he hasn't been a good hitter for seven years, people still hold to the belief that he's a wizard because I also continue to believe that he's a wizard, even though he's coming Mm -hmm. up on as many below average hitting seasons as he had above average hitting (laughs) seasons. But I guess that's what happens when you continue to play when you're 65 years old. Yeah. Should we answer a related question? It's not like we have a shortage of emails for the actual email show. So (laughs) we got another question about this from Adam who said Ichiro's emotional home run in Seattle got me thinking, what if the opposing team wanted you to hit a home run? It was obviously a great moment for Mariners fans to see a hero hit a homer. really seemed perfect, almost too perfect. If you're an opposing pitcher and you want the batter to hit a home run, how easy could you make it? Could you essentially guarantee a homer over the course of his four at-bats? Could you guarantee multiple homers? What if the batter knew you were working together in this way? How different would it be for a replacement level batter versus a star? And he has the caveat, let's assume that you have to at least make an effort to disguise what you're doing here. As the pitcher, you can't obviously be tossing home run derby balls to the plate. But other than that, anything goes. Yeah, so I don't think so. I was thinking about the home run derby approach, but just to run another quick search, according to Baseball Savant, this season, there have been 2,090 fastballs, that's four seamers, two seamers, or sinkers, which are the same thing, throwing down the middle of the plate. So in the middle middle third in both dimensions, I guess. So 2,090 of those pitches and do you have a guess how many of those have been hit for home runs? Uh, 2,090 pitches, uh, 25? 45. So 45 mm. home runs on fastballs right down the middle. That works out to a rate of 2 point roughly 2%, which is not very many. Now, that is very high still. You don't want to give up 2.2 home runs for every 100 pitches you throw. You would not be in the major leagues, probably. Let me take that back. Definitely. You would not be in the major <laughs> leagues. But I think that it reminds me of there is the controversy. Adam Wainwright was alleged to have grooved right. a pitch to Derek Jeter. But of course, in his later days, Derek Jeter couldn't hit home runs anyway. So he just like slash a single or something. And yeah. going back way further, like a decade and a half ago, there was talk that Chan Ho Park grooved a fastball to Cal Ripken that he hit out in mm-hmm. an all-star game. And that sort of predated actual baseball analysis. So I think that that myth continues to exist almost exclusively in old archived message boards but (laughs) it's there and people still talk Mm -hmm. about it as evidenced by me talking about it right now so i think if you could go out there and throw home run derby pitches then clearly as shown by the home run derby you could definitely get a lot of home runs however if you are throwing close to your usual speed and you're just trying to groove the ball well for one thing home runs against pitches that hard are very hard even if the hitter knows what to look for and for another thing pitchers can't aim that well it just mm-hmm. we've you've looked at this and the the fact i always recall that i think you 
pulled out when looking at command effects is that the average pitch misses the implied target by like 11 or 12 inches, which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. But also maybe not so crazy considering the pitchers are throwing really hard from 60 and a half feet away from <laughs> the plate. So maybe that's really accurate. But in any case, I think that you could, against the best hitters, maybe you could average like one home run a game. But I'm not real confident in asserting that. Mm -hmm. And it would never happen anyway other than the All-Star Game exhibition game scenario because I don't think any pitcher wants to see that moment enough for it to (laughs) (laughs) hurt his stats because even if you do it on purpose to provide a nice moment for the hometown crowd, it still shows up in your FIP. I don't think there is any adjustment for intentionality there. So given the amount of money that's at stake in free agency and arbitration, I don't think anyone is going to risk it. But I agree it would be difficult to do if you were disguising it, although it would help if you passed a message to the hitter before if he knew which pitch was coming that he could count on that that would probably make a very big difference I mean I think a lot of hitters are looking fastball anyway and if the ball's right down the middle of the plate that's what they are primed to swing at anyway but if they know that's coming and they don't have to protect other parts of the plate or look outside the strike zone or worry about breaking balls or something then they can give their hardest possible swing and time it right. So that would help quite a bit. Yes, agreed. All right. Uh, Do you have anything else? Nope. Okay, so I have two somewhat quick things. We got an email from, oh, I wish I would have practiced this. Let's just call him Bobby. We got an email from Bobby, who also has a last name, and he sent in a uh, what looked like a mistake made during an MLB.com recap. Uh, uh, yes. There are different sections of the MLB.com recaps you might be familiar with. There's the regular recap. There are sections like uh, Sound Smart with Your Friends, a section called Optional Section, which probably isn't actually titled that, and a section called Quotable. So there was a story published on MLB.com that I think was only up for a brief amount of time, but it looked like the story was published without someone having deleted the existing template. So maybe you mm-hmm. go into the editorial page and then there are a bunch of words there that you just have to clear out. So mm-hmm. there's boldface quotable and then underneath, this is a story published, underneath quotable were these words. Use a quote here. Make it something that's fun or interesting on its own. You can also use quotes in other parts of the recap where relevant. This section is optional. Don't empty your notebook for a boring quote. If there's a good quote from the other team, use it here. Or a great additional quote from the first team, go for it. Okay, so whatever. It's an easy mistake to make. It's a game recap. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people read these things. So this is not this is not the poke fun at MLB.com. They do a lot of good work and whatever. We've all made simple editorial mistakes. But then that got me curious. I'll read again quotable use a quote here make it something that's fun or interesting on its own so i went searching and i didn't have to search very far because i found a quote from the previous days so i guess that would be what wednesdays pirates cardinals pirates cardinals it doesn't matter pirates somebody quotable there was a quotable section you might remember that the quotable section is optional you (laughs) don't need to have a quote unless it is interesting or fun or as they put it fun or interesting and uh, Mm -hmm. i found a quote in there from john jaso the quotable section yeah. exists in the recap and John Jason's quote on the Pirates sweep or be swept streak, which is one of those things that's weird to notice. Quote, John Jaso, it's bizarre. Such is this game and such is life. John Jaso, <laughs> quote, it's bizarre. Such is this game and such is life. Done. That sealed the deal. That was considered fun and or interesting enough to include in the game recap. And yeah. I don't think anybody would have emptied their notebook 
to get that quote. And I didn't even include the other one, which was just, uh, there were two quotes included in the quotable section. Two, like the writer couldn't, I'm not going to name the writer because whatever, but like the writer mm-hmm. couldn't decide, I don't know which of these quotes is better. So there's John Jaso saying literally nothing. <laughs> and then there's also uh, Michael Waka, who was asked about the Cardinals turnaround after being swept by the Yankees. And his quote, I'm not going to read it because it's a paragraph, but the quote basically says, we weren't worried we just have to play well. <laughs> Neither fun nor interesting. I don't know who decides these things, but these are all like veteran report. Whatever. It's just bad, bad quotes. But the the other thing I wanted to move on to, my last piece of banter, banter will occupy the majority of this podcast duration. <laughs> uh-huh. This is something I've seen on the background watching some A's games. I don't know why I didn't think to talk about it until now. Maybe if you've watched any A's games, which you probably haven't, because why would you except for Andrew Triggs? <laughs> This year, A's home games, there's been an advertisement behind home plate where there are common advertisements. It's an advertisement for a an upcoming promotional giveaway. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I've seen this on Twitter. Okay, so the A's have an upcoming bobblehead giveaway on May 6th. Right. I believe they have three or four bobblehead giveaways this year. One is like Chris Davis. One of them has, I think, Barry Zito and somebody else because... I guess who else are you going to market on the team? <laughs> so actually, I can. this is easy enough to look up the A's promotional schedule. Here are the bobbleheads for this A's team. Not boobblehead, that's a typo. Bobblehead. <laughs> Chris Davis, maybe the A's best player, certainly the most electrifying offensive player they have. Mm-hmm. Chris Davis, current athletic. In July, they have a Miguel Tejada and a Barry Zito bobblehead because why not market the good players from 12 years ago? <laughs> yeah. In later July, there's a g Easy bobblehead. <laughs> So not even a baseball player, but coming up. Oh, well, there. I'm sorry. There is a Dennis Eckersley bobblehead. So why not go back even more decades into A's mm-hmm. lore? But the first bobblehead of the season is one Bob Melvin. And this is interesting for a few reasons. One, I get, okay, three reasons. One, how many marketable managers are there in baseball? Two, is Bob Melvin actually a marketable manager in baseball? <laughs> I think the answer yeah. is no. They refer right. to it in the advertisement as Bomel. Bomel bobblehead. So Bob Melvin apparently has a nickname where Bob is too long of a name. So they had to shorten it by 33%. So I disagree with the idea that Bob Melvin is one of the marketable managers. But I think what's even more fun about it is uh, I have a, let's see, a Hillsborough Hops bobblehead above my desk. It's Ben Petrick, an assistant coach with the team. And it's a bobblehead of Ben Petrick swinging. He looks to be completing oh. at least a fly ball swing. Maybe a home run swing. Ben Petrick, who came up on our last episode for yeah. having a four RBI game without a hit. That's the one. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked the current staff, but he's at least had a recent job with the Hillsborough Hops, some local minor league affiliate. Anyway, so most bobbleheads, including mm-hmm. this Ben Petrick bobblehead, but also most major league bobbleheads, will feature a player, and the player will be doing something. He'll be holding a bat, or he'll be swinging, or I don't know, maybe making a play, or posing, or you know, just something that's sort of particular to the player in question, correct? Yep. Right. The Bob Melvin bobblehead, I don't know what you're supposed to do with a manager bobblehead, but all it is, it's Bob Melvin standing. He's wearing sunglasses, as I guess he commonly does. I don't know. His eyebrows are a little bit raised, but it's just Bob Melvin standing with his hands on his hips. (laughs) And I guess I don't know what pose you put a manager in, but this pose seems to imply that Bob Melvin is just just standing and his hands are on his hips. And these is this is that 
is that the manager pose? I don't know. What would you do with a manager bobblehead? Hmm. I'd have him like, I don't know if you're allowed to have a prop or something, but like looking at a lineup card maybe or signaling to the bullpen, something like that, or standing on the top step of a dugout or yeah, some some sort of active pose that would... <laughs> That you'd find a manager in or just sitting on the bench with a windbreaker on or something like that. Yeah, yeah, not not that. Yeah, he just looks vaguely impatient, whether like the A's, <laughs> the game's going too long or like his starter's already throwing 30 pitches in the inning or like the reliever is he's waiting for the reliever to come in from the bullpen. And maybe this is as active as a manager is because they don't even really argue anymore with umpires. And you probably mm. can't release the <laughs> bobblehead of Bob Melvin getting in like Joe West's face. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, there's no picture here on the A's website of what the Chris Davis bobblehead is going to look like. I'm going to guess it's Chris Davis hitting a massive donger because that's what he does. And mm-hmm. maybe this is just Bob Melvin watching Chris Davis hit said donger because it turns out that when you're a manager, the actual nine innings of baseball do not require you to do very much. Yeah. Oh, see here, I just Googled MLB manager bobbleheads to see what the precedents were. Mm-hmm. And there's a Ned Yost bobblehead from what I think this is just last season. He's sitting on the bench with his legs crossed and his arm on the bench, kind mm-hmm. of just a, a casual pose. He is smiling oh. quite widely. But yeah, this is a, a very managerial I like it here. Yeah, I like this too. I like that post for Nedios. I think that's how he commonly gives interviews. I think uh-huh. people will like interview him in the dugout and he's just going to be doing that. I think the alternate would have been the bobblehead of him riding Alcides Escobar into the leadoff spot, but that might have been a little too specific for a bobblehead uh-huh. doll. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's Bobby Valentine. There's a there's a bobblehead. There's a previous Yoast bobblehead, evidently, oh. that was when he was in Milwaukee, and he says it didn't look anything like him. He says the Royals one has his hair way too gray, and it has him <laughs> way too skinny. I'm just looking. There's a Ozzie Gian bobblehead on Amazon that I just found, and that's one that you would expect. Like he was a colorful character. He had interesting quotes and a personality more so than <laughs> Bob Melvin does, and he is smiling widely and has his arms crossed at least folded so that's that looks a little more managerial the twins evidently in 2012 announced a 1000 limited edition bobblehead doll set showcasing all 12 managers of the minnesota twins (laughs) (laughs) so every manager of the twins as a bobblehead for 210 dollars for the set (laughs) wow uh, yeah, yeah here, there's a Dave Roberts one here. His arms are crossed. Okay, here's a Tommy Lasorda bobblehead of him like holding a plaque of something that it's probably Tommy mm-hmm. Lasorda. <laughs> this gets really <laughs> detailed and mm-hmm. meta. Uh, there's, yeah. let's see, Joe Madden bobblehead gnome. That's not interesting. There's mm-hmm. Robin Ventura is here holding a baseball and a bat, which again, that's also not something a manager does, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> at least it's more interesting than hands on hips. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, apparently like a an old Bob Brenly bobblehead doll where he has his thumbs tucked. His his hands look like they're sort of on his hips, but his mm-hmm. thumbs look like maybe they're kind of like tucked into the top of his pants, you know, in that like cowboy walking pose. <laughs> yeah. So the Bob Brenly one is vaguely sexual. <laughs> uh, okay, there appears to be a Mike Sosha bobblehead. I'm not going to just keep doing this. Uh, Mike Sosha's <laughs> leaning on a baseball bat, it looks nothing like Mike Sosha at all. Yeah. And then uh, I'll just end with a Joe Madden bobblehead that appears to be him at some sort of podium, which is mm-hmm. appropriate. So there's yeah. a few hands-on hips-ish or arms-crossed bobbleheads, and then there's 
Joe Madden at a podium, which is something that managers do. Mm-hmm. When I wrote down this note to talk about this a little bit, I realized I can't recall the last time I actually wrote the name of a manager in a post. Mm. Uh, I know you talk about managers more often because you are a better and more thorough writer than I am. However, <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly can't remember the last time I even paid a manager any attention. Yeah, a lot of our posts about managers tend to be how difficult it is to evaluate managers and how little we know about managers and that sort of thing. So that gets old after a while. I will uh, just stand up for the John Jaso quote. I don't know if it's fun or interesting, but <laughs> it sounds philosophical at least. It's uh, such as the game and such as life. It's That's a sentence you could append to almost any <laughs> quote about baseball, right? You could stick that on any post-game quote and it would apply generally. So yeah. I'd like to see Jaso keep breaking that out and see if it is deemed to be fun or interesting. Just use that as his go-to cliche. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Though when I when I worked at Espionation and Rob Nyer was my editor, he had a rule, I think this is when uh, Grant Brisby and I were both basically the staff under Rob and all three of us would write constant articles, but Rob before too long passed a I would say a soft but strongly enforced rule that we weren't allowed to write articles where the whole thesis was just baseball is weird and we weren't allowed to explicitly say hey baseball is weird because i think he just got tired of everything being well baseball's weird but it works kind of the same way as that's the game and that's life where it's just kind of everything you write about well everything you could write about baseball would just be hey this game's weird look how consistently weird and therefore maybe not weird it is but it'll get Mm -hmm. you that's how kyle hendricks walks tommy malone on four pitches (laughs) just the other day yeah that's right you you got a post out of that oh loved it love easy (laughs) posts (laughs) all right okay so we have i don't know like three minutes left (laughs) might as well do (laughs) the topic uh, mm-hmm. I thought about having one of the uh, somebody on to interview for this, but I thought that it would be more interesting to have a Statcast episode where we talk about Statcast without getting official word, because I think we we've had roughly two years of having access to the information. Two years since Statcast was folded in and became sort of I don't know omnipresent, mm-hmm. and I think we could have a little conversation about our impressions of Statcast and where things stand. If we already take it for granted, if there are certain things that are overused, etc open-ended stat cast conversation so mm-hmm. this is uh come up there's there's obviously a lot of good work going into it the first conflict i'm having is whether we as a general public are appreciating it enough or if it's over appreciated to the point where it's annoying i know there's been a lot of griping that i've come across about people just using exit velocities all the time or reporting exit velocities yeah. for everything which mm-hmm. I agree, I have found a little bit irritating, mm-hmm. except that I also self-select for people who are most likely to be interested in that <laughs> stuff. So yeah. I can't really say anything. I'm one of them as well. And if you if you watch any baseball game or watch anything on game day, any sort of baseball presentation, you're going to see a reported pitch velocity for every pitch that's thrown unless the tracking system is broken. And people want that. Mm-hmm. It would be feel weird uh, when, when a, the tracking technology is down and the broadcast doesn't have a pitch speed reported it feels a little naked it's like what what was that was that a fastball a changeup, etc and so mm-hmm. it's just there uh, except i think one of the differences is that you don't say the release velocity of that pitch was 83 miles per hour after every right. single 83 mile per hour pitch mm-hmm. so i don't know do you think exit velocity is in a good place do you think it's in a bad place do you think it has a branding or presentation problem how do you feel about exit velocity being everywhere now yeah i mean i understand the backlash when 
there's a cool home run, you just kind of want to watch it and admire it. And when someone then tweets out, that home run was 111.3 miles per hour and had a launch angle of 27.2 degrees or whatever, it it doesn't add that much to my appreciation of the home run like if it's if it's an outlier home run in some way like it was one of the hardest hits or one of the highest launched or lowest launched or one of the slowest and weakest hit then that's interesting if it's an exception in some way but the vast majority of home runs are hit hard with Uh, an angle you know somewhere between whatever it is 25 or 35 degrees or it's in some fairly narrow range and so for the most part i just blank that out basically Mm -hmm. i I just yeah well it was a home run we knew it was (laughs) hit hard (laughs) we knew it was hit at a fairly optimal angle it went over the fence so we could have concluded that much so i think it's a very valuable tool and when used in large samples or to compare a player to his previous self or something like that it's it's great it's amazing that we have this it's wonderful on any individual ball and play you know it it can still be useful if it's an outlier and if you want to show that this ball is usually not a hit or no one else hits the ball this hard that's great but you know, otherwise, if it's just overused, if it's just a standard response to a home run, then I find it a little bit tiresome. And and there's like a wider range, I think, than there is in, well, I don't know if that's true, but is there a wider range in exit velocity than there is in pitch velocity? Like pitch velocity, like one mile per hour makes a big difference. Right. If you're throwing 97 or something that's significantly more impressive than 96 and your expected outcome is significantly better if your exit speed on a batted ball is whatever 105 instead of 104 or something like there are really good outcomes on a much wider scale so you can have a a good batted ball that is 90 something miles per hour or 110 something miles per hour so it's not as fun to parse it kind of on a mile per hour per i mean mm-hmm. you know it was exactly this hard and we know that that means x like i'm i'm sure that the harder you hit it the better your expected outcome is given a certain launch angle but the range isn't so narrow that it's as much fun to just look at and maybe that's partially that we haven't internalized the scale as well as we have with pitch velocity but you know like every pitch is going to be every fastball is going to be between 90 and 100 generally and then there are a few exceptions to that and those are interesting and we know those guys who can throw harder than 100 or who throw really soft but for the most part narrow range and so when you move up a tick or two on that range it means more than it would for exit velocity. So I think those are the two obstacles to appreciating it on a ball-per-ball basis. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's crucial. It's a great analytical tool to have when you're doing bulk research. I love yeah. analyzing exit velocity. I think when you have a big enough sample, exit velocity feels a lot like the hitter's version of pitch velocity, and you yep. need to know that information for it, where I guess you don't need to, but you'd love to know that information for a pitcher. It helps you evaluate him, and exit velocity is how we know that Aaron Judge is a freak, or that right. 
he could be a come well, up. You got to know where your standard is. It's one way we could know, right? I mean, <laughs> you could also just look at Aaron Judge yeah. in okay, a baseball once. Yeah. You, <laughs> you and your scout school background are just like, yeah, you could just look at him and realize he's a freak. I guess you could say the same for Eric Thames. Look at the six seven guy who hits balls 450 feet. Yeah, he's kind of a freak. How tall is Eric Thames? I'm going to pull this up right now. He's a, Eric Thames is listed at six feet, but I think <laughs> Eric Thames is basically like... Aaron judges body except you just compress it you know yeah. it's just like you put him on a high gravity planet and then that's <laughs> Eric Thames except he's uh-huh. hitting on a low gravity planet I don't yeah. know it's hard to <laughs> anyway uh, with home runs I think something we've seen this year and it's folded into MLB game day but now pretty much every single home run shows up in the feed with the exit velocity, the launch angle, and the distance. And so then people yeah. love to copy and paste that, put it on Twitter. I realize this is such a first world. This is beyond a first <laughs> world complaint. But anyway, <laughs> it still shows up. And most of the time, it turns out, it turns out most home runs are just regular home runs. Like if I do yes. a search on Baseball Savant, this year there have been almost 500 home runs, and the average home run has been hit about 104 miles per hour. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, great. The, we know that. We know that home runs are hit well because they're home runs. Yeah. Is it because we're used to the pitch speed scale? And so anything over 100 is like, whoa, hey, I should tweet about that. Whereas in baseball, like all of the hardest hit balls are that fast. So it's mm-hmm. not as impressive. Maybe, I don't know, maybe 110 is the equivalent of 100 for a pitch speed. But when we see the triple digits, it's like, whoa, hey, triple digits. But yeah, right. It's, yeah. Uh, and I don't, I think maybe. Maybe one of the issues with pitch velocity, you watch a pitch and you it's really hard for me to see visually the difference between 92 and 98. Yeah. With hitters, you know, you know when a hitter has made good contact. You can mm-hmm. tell. We have, I mean, I assume we've all watched enough baseball to know either that ball was well hit or that ball was not well hit. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's going to be a border somewhere. And this is how Baseball Info Solutions calculates like soft hit, medium hit, and hard hit that shows up on fan graphs. That's also, by the way, really useful data. And I sometimes I like that even more than exit velocity just because it's easier to say. Like mm-hmm. there's no clean barrier between a medium hit ball and a, and a hard hit ball. But still, you know that a ball like a home run, yeah, th- under uh, nearly all circumstances, a home run is hit well. It's interesting when they're not when they are like fly balls they just carry Mm -hmm. and i like to see those like you said the exceptions are great but like if you have if you have a blooper you don't need to know well that ball was hit 68 miles per hour off the bat at a launch angle of 43 degrees and had a catch probability of 93 (laughs) percent. that's great i guess but it doesn't it doesn't actually add anything to my understanding of the play i already know that was a blooper the batter got lucky it caught mm-hmm. a void in in the defense yeah so here the the fault is i think maybe more in the user's case yes. like i don't have any problem with mlb making that information available I, I guess they could set it up so that it only displays if it's interesting but i'm yeah. fine with them just putting it out there and whatever it's more information and we have it if we want it so maybe it's just that we have to get used to this stuff it's this shiny new toy still and we're thrilled that we have this information so we're kind of over exuberant about disseminating it and maybe a few years from now no one will be 
interested in this anymore and we'll we'll stop tweeting out every batted balls details but right there's no problem here on the side of MLB AM I don't think mm-hmm. or the or the Statcast team if you look at game day it's not like we complained that they show all the information for every pitch by Ricky Nolasco right. that's not interesting <laughs> but it's still there and if you ever want to make use of it it's there it's just nobody nobody scrambles to say Ricky Nolasco just had a release velocity of 90 point whatever the hell he does who cares yeah He's still pitching. He's still pitching. He's not even that old. <laughs> it's incredible. He's on a competitive team. Yeah. So I I don't even feel right complaining because it's not worth complaining about. But just in terms, the Statcast is is so new to all of us. But I guess we just need to feel out the best way to present it. And it seems mm-hmm. like there are very few play specific circumstances where it adds to what you can already see visually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And as for the defense stuff, which is what we were all most excited about, which seemed to have the most potential to tell us things that we didn't already know, I think it's great. The way that they have rolled it out, I, you know, I, I think Tom Tango and, and maybe the team even before he was there have kind of taken this approach that we'll just put what we have out there and it won't be perfect and final and we're still tweaking it and we're finding ways to improve it and become more comprehensive but it's interesting and we'll put it out there and we'll get feedback from the community and then we will apply that feedback and so in year one for instance i think there was sort of a failure to provide context for stats often so there would be numbers put out there and it was the first year we had this and we didn't know if this was a good number or a bad number (laughs) and there was no real attempt to say well the average is this and so this is whatever this is something standard deviations from the mean or whatever because the the way to make something easily accessible is to start quoting standard deviations but i don't know (laughs) there was like it was hard to say was this a good spin rate is is that a good root efficiency or whatever and something like root efficiency or even the current five-star catch probability system you know they've been upfront about it not accounting for certain things such as wall balls or whether the player is running in or running back and we know those things are going to make a difference and so they don't always match up with our eyes and that can be a good thing at times because one of the nice things about this data is that in theory it will tell us whether that diving catch that appeared to be amazing was really amazing or was just a diving catch because the guy was too slow to get there and catch it on the run so That's going to be a big difference, but I think there have been cases probably where the numbers have oversold or undersold a play, and maybe that erodes people's confidence in the data. I remember, do you you remember the first year of SACS where you would see player acceleration? What the hell was that about? Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't think anybody ever made heads or tails of that measure. Yeah, there were confusing scales and metrics, and it wasn't clear what the units were, so... Yeah, there were there were some missteps there early on. Yeah, I quite enjoy the catch probability stuff. I think when it comes to like if you have a a diving play and it turns out that the play was like relatively easy for another player to make. I think there's another thing there where the fans who are watching the play 
can recognize it's never easy to make a diving catch. And if a player maybe didn't take a perfect route to a ball, you still want to be able to appreciate the effort that allowed the player to make the play, even if he sort of made a mistake earlier. So a player can introduce a certain degree of difficulty into a play that doesn't have a high degree of difficulty. And so there are sort of two ways you can look at that. You can say, well, did the player do everything perfectly or did the player do something exceptional to sort of salvage his own mistake, which is, I guess we Mm -hmm. could call that the Oduble Herrera, if you want. (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, again, that's it's not even a complaint. I don't know what that is, but a a niche observation. But I think that there's a reason people love diving catches, and I don't think it's always because people think the player made the perfect play or the best play possible. Mm-hmm. I think that people just think diving catches are very hard, and they are. And I think that when you look at maybe an inefficient route, it sort of it misses a little bit of the mark Mm -hmm. so i guess this is sort of a a larger question of what does and doesn't statcast information do to enhance the entertainment value of a of a baseball broadcast which is probably Mm -hmm. its main point i don't know its main point whether it's for team analysis or just for basically adding to uh visual displays of the game i don't know Mm -hmm. where the real money is made seems like it's probably an easy question for me to answer but i don't have the answer because i'm a moron if i wanted to i could have had someone like darren willman or mike petriello or maybe tango on this podcast but i didn't want to do that because i didn't want to just do a a stat guest q a i kind of felt like it would be worth issuing some feedback so i don't know we have another 10 minutes if we want we've had two years Stackhouse is introduced. Clearly, there's all the information you could want for hitters, except except for some missing plays that still aren't calculated. There's basically everything you need for pitchers, and they're working on defense. They're working on speed is something they've just started to Mm -hmm. hone in on the best way to calculate that. And hey, it turns out Billy Hamilton's really fast. I don't know how much we're going to learn from speed, but there was at least an interesting data point in a recent Mike Petriello article, uh, they're calculating like top sprint speed, I think is yeah. basically what they're looking at. And they're looking at the ground covered uh, within one second mm-hmm. for players at their top speeds, which I think is a, a clever way, not the only way, but a clever way of looking at speed. And one interesting thing I did notice, or that I should say I noticed that Mike Petriello noticed, is that <laughs> not only is Jose Batista quite low compared to other players or outfielders, but also he got his top speed was significantly slower last year than the year before, which that's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And that's something that we could have maybe guessed or assumed, but to see it actually there on mm-hmm. paper in what I assume is verifiable fact, that's that's great. That's really interesting to see that Jose Batista is slower than most players and also he got slower still. Yeah, that's great. He's like the proverbial guy who you would say has lost a step, right? Right, and that's exactly. That's something. And now you can actually quantify that, see whether he has, see whether it was more than one step. So yeah, as we have a bigger sample and we can cover a player's entire career with this stuff and we can find out what it means. Like, what does it mean if a player loses a step, if his sprint speed is a little lower? What does that mean for his base running and his fielding? And does that tell us anything about what's going to happen next year? If a player loses a step, does he then start losing more steps more quickly? Or, you know, so there's all types of applications of that that we can't really do yet but we'll be able to in the future yeah so i have maybe a maybe a two-part question we'll see how this goes uh one what is what is your usual response when you see the average display of some sort of stat cast measure and i guess that would usually be on twitter maybe in an article Mm -hmm. how do you typically respond to seeing stat cast information now 
I don't know. I always feel like I'm I'm not really an infographic guy, like the way that I tend to think or respond to data. Like I always just sort of like seeing a table and just being able to sort it more so than seeing a fancy graphic. There are exceptions to that. And Darren does some really cool displays. So, and especially when you're doing broadcast stuff, you want visual information. So, I mean, every time I see it, I'm still sort of wowed by the fact that this information exists and maybe it's not perfect. Not everything is tracked or recorded, but the fact that it exists is still really cool. And it can be frustrating at times as a writer because I want it all right now and I want it all to be accessible to me so that I can do any idea that I have. And MLB sort of controls this data and has released it publicly in limited form. I mean, they didn't have to release it in any form. So it's nice that we have it. And I know teams would probably prefer that we didn't have it. But it's sort of like, I don't know, for the last decade or so, I've had access to the state of the art baseball information, whether through baseball prospectus or whatever, like we had all the pitch FX information, anything that was available publicly, I could see and use in articles. And now that's not always the case because MLB gets it first and Mm -hmm. MLB has really good people covering this stuff. Mike is great and he kind of gets the first crack at the data and does really interesting things with it. And so there are times when I wish that we could dig into it in a little more depth and that it were accessible in different ways or you know partially it's just impatience in that they're still refining these things and there is a bit of a growth period with pitch fx where it wasn't in every park and it wasn't totally accurate and there were calibration errors and that lasted for a little while and it's only natural that that period would last longer with statcast because it's vastly more complicated so we're going to get to a point where it's all useful and we've arrived at a great way to present it and it's out there hopefully in a more granular way that we can all sift through as we want but not quite there yet and that's understandable so as it is now i tend to i guess see it more as fun facts and interesting little kind of observations about players who do things maybe and stand out from other players in ways that i wouldn't have realized but I'm usually not like rocked back on my heels by a stat cast stat. Like uh, mm-hmm. it, it usually confirms something that I already would have thought. And I like having the numbers to confirm something I would have already thought, but I could understand why someone else would say I already thought that. And thus I am deriving no value from the numbers. Yeah. I think this started with a little bit of stat cast complaining or venting, but realistically, this should be a Statcast appreciation episode, sort of. Uh, I, if you you might remember that two or three years ago, there was a great deal of I think very legitimate concern that none of this information would be public. Yeah. And by the way, we have almost everything. They've hired very outstanding communicators and builders and mm-hmm. thinkers in Tango and Darren Willman and Mike Petriello and so many more that baseball didn't need to do this for for us, for you, for the whole community. This could exist just for them, just for the broadcast, just for teams. Uh, we get everything. That's amazing. 
I remember years ago opening like a Bill James annual or something. And I saw this is right around when the Mariners signed Adrian Beltre. So this is like 12 years ago or something. And and his manual had like the top 10 hitters against different pitch types for the previous Mm -hmm. season, like in terms of batting average and slugging and I was like, look at Adrian Beltre against sliders. Look what he did, or then look at what he didn't do. I thought that was groundbreaking information. I remember a yeah. few years later when Fangraphs incorporated batted ball data, like ground ball rate, and I thought, this is going to change everything. We have <laughs> speeds and spins and launch angles and release points and everything, almost everything, you, everything you could want for like 88% of baseball pitches and hits, Most more mm-hmm. pitches than that. Uh, roughly that number of hits. There are still missing plays and like weak grounders and pop-ups and whatnot, but whatever. There are adjustments that smarter people can make to those, and and that's outstanding. I think it is incredible. It does. If I sit back, it does blow my mind that we have this information now, and I I know I take it for granted in the same way that I I take everything good about baseball for granted. Uh, when you are immersed in baseball every day and you have to produce content, you can't really pause and think yourself too often this is amazing look how blessed i am i'm just gonna sit back and appreciate my blessing if there is a problem i guess that maybe the problem is on us or just the the sort of the the outside who maybe over communicate the new information in Mm -hmm. a way that is not necessary to always have and i guess that's just sort of a feeling out process where realistically you don't need to report the average results the average stuff and maybe maybe other people will just take a longer amount of time to get used to knowing what is and what isn't normal it doesn't help that exit velocity has six syllables in it and it's just an annoying thing to keep saying over and over yeah so maybe Mm -hmm. that's kind of a marketing problem but we've talked about that before and why velocity instead of speed why exit at all why why not just have like a very quick word just like that ball left the bat with the speed of 110 miles per hour. It becomes a lot easier, more consumable, but that's such a minor thing to even point out. Mm-hmm. Whatever. We say velocity for pitch speed, and that's four syllables right there, so whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess there is a maybe oversaturation of StatCast information. I can't speak for the average fan because I, of course, curate the people that I pay attention to. Those people happen to pay a lot of attention to StatCast, but... Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. it's it's a lot better to have sort of too much stat cast than too little information. And I guess if we are complaining that we know too much about baseball, that's a that's a good place for us to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you follow a bunch of stat people on Twitter, which both of us probably do, there's been carping this year about the switch over from pitch fx to Mm -hmm. trackman which has you know changed things a little bit and that velocity baselines are different now from what they were and evidently there's some bugginess going on with the break stats and Mm -hmm. on pitches so there are little issues like that that 0.1% of the baseball population is aware of and bothered about, but probably not any sort of permanent issue or something that impacts a lot of people. So those things can maybe get blown out of proportion a little bit. Not Not that they couldn't have been communicated more clearly, maybe, but it's not something that impacts a whole lot of the baseball following population. Yeah, if there's anything about velocity, you can. it's not that hard to adjust for, and anyone who's a fan of Hisashi Iwakuma should be, I think, greatly concerned. <laughs> okay, are we done? 
I think we're done. All right. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have just done so include Joshua Roberts, Michael Juntinen, Tyler Baber, Christopher Gold, and Ryan Lemon. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Reviews are always welcome. They help push us up the charts. Keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. And that is it for this week. So have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you soon. Ooh, hey.